Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. No, you're not crazy. We are spending more time in those fast food drive throughs and they're also a little less accurate. A new study done with mystery shoppers found that we're spending about a minute more in these lines than we were last year. And when it comes to accuracy, Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell are top of the list. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Amelia Lucas, restaurant reporter at CNBC.com. So this year, the total time in the drive through became 382 seconds, which is nearly a minute longer than pre-pandemic times. According to this annual report from C-Level HX, which does kind of an annual study, sends out mystery shoppers to different fast food chains to test their drive throughs Yeah, so we're spending, it's like about six minutes or so, I guess, total is what it seems to be about. But yeah, they, they use mystery shoppers. They sent them to drive throughs across 10 chains, and I think it was about 1,400 restaurants in total. So that's what they're seeing is that we're just spending that little bit more time. Why do they think that is? What is the behind all of it? So there's a couple of different reasons why this could be happening. Number one is the fact that Americans are just using drive-through lanes a lot more than they were before the pandemic. You know, they're just more crowded. So if it's a longer line, you're going to be waiting more time for your food. Two, there's a labor shortage right now, or labor crunch. Restaurants are having a really hard time finding enough workers to staff. And so that means, you know, there aren't as many people in the kitchen filling your orders. It might be uh, people juggling a few more tasks than they normally would. And on that front, real quick, just uh, newer workers, right? We've seen the labor shortage, but if you're having a lot of turnover, newer employees, they might not know the system right. You know, that could bog things down as well. Yeah, definitely. If they haven't had as much training or as much time for training as well, it certainly makes things a lot more difficult. A third potential reason, too, is that a lot of fast food chains last year kind of trimmed down their menus, got rid of things that weren't selling as well because they couldn't have as many workers in their kitchens. But now they've started to bring so many items back, and that just you know makes it, again, more difficult for the workers to complete orders as fast as they need to. As I mentioned at the beginning, too, order accuracy dropped also for this last year. What did it drop to, and, and who's doing it right? Like, who are the best ones that are getting the orders right? So now about 85% of fast food orders are fulfilled correctly compared to 87% last year. And top of the list this year for accuracy was Chick-fil-A and then Taco Bell, which is owned by Yum Brands, came in second. Yeah. And then I guess there was a tie between Arby's, Carl's Jr. and Burger King. Those all tied for third place. You know, that's just an interesting thing. I, I guess part of it, they say, obviously, improve the technology that you're doing with, you know, those little digital menus that kind of read out what your order are just so you can kind of confirm along the way. Those are very helpful in getting those orders right. Did we see who did it right when it came to speed as far as like less time spent in those drive throughs Yeah, so unfortunately this year they did not publicly share the rankings for each of the 10 restaurants and how well they did in terms of speed. But last year KFC was at the top of the list, which makes sense because, you know, putting chicken in buckets is definitely much faster than hand flipping some burgers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got to cook the chicken beforehand and whatnot. I, I'd be curious to see what that list is. You know, one of my favorites, I live in California, obviously, in and out I love going there. But man, anytime you 
you get into an in and out line, you're going to be there for a while. And depending at the time of day, that line is into the street in a lot of places. So, so that's a very tough one to get through. Unfortunately, in and out was not one of the 10 chains that was uh, surveyed because they're not national. But, you know, I certainly I wonder about some of the other ones that didn't make the list as well, like Starbucks. Yeah. Dev- oh, yeah, that's good. I'm not even thinking about this. You know, I'm thinking more along the food line and not even thinking about Starbucks and, and tons of people go there. So, yeah, just a lot of interesting information there. I mean, if you're spending any time in a drive through, you're spending a lot more time in there. Amelia Lucas, restaurant reporter at CNBC.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Worker burnout has been an issue for some time now, but the pandemic has shown many people just how much their work has taken a toll on their lives. With constant meetings and new pressures, people are struggling to take control. Unfortunately, sometimes it could take a life-changing event to realize it. For more on why you should care a little less to get your life back, We'll speak to Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. I'm not talking about slacking off. I'm not talking about like napping all day or, you know, I did a story a couple of weeks back about, you know, having two jobs and kind of gaming the system. I'm, I'm really just talking about having some emotional distance from your job, being able to say no to little things that don't matter, figuring out what actually matters and what doesn't. And what one expert told me, she was like, if you're having to ask yourself this question, like if if you're kind of like inherently like an overachiever and a little too obsessed with work, she was like, you could probably take it down like 25% and you'd (laughs) still be doing a good job. And that really resonated with me. And that's so hard for a lot of people, right? We uh, tend to let our jobs become our identities in many parts of it. And it's just really hard to detach. You know, how many times do you hear learn to love what you do or, you know, the grind never stops, you know, all these things that, you know, just kind of more firmly put you into that mode of, uh, of thinking you can never really stop doing that stuff. And a lot of times to gain some of this perspective, sometimes something major has to happen. You opened your story with a man who was 45 years old, pretty young. He had a heart attack and that was the catalyst for him to really say, okay, I need to change things. His story was so moving to me. I, I had seen a LinkedIn post that he wrote months ago and immediately thought of him for this piece. He sat down to get started on work, you know, on a Sunday for the prep for the work week. And he had a heart attack. And like one of his first thoughts was like, you know, it was an expletive. I don't know if I can say it on your radio program. I couldn't say it in the Wall Street Journal. But right. he was like, I got to meet with my manager tomorrow. Like this isn't convenient. And he survived and kind of changed his life and changed his perspective. He talked a bunch about what you were talking about, too, this sense that, like, your work becomes your job. You're supposed to find purpose and meaning in your work, you know, like that's the thing. And hustle culture, you're supposed to always be improving yourself. Um, And not that those things aren't kind of valuable goals, but I think, like, we've taken it too far a little bit. So what do we do then? You know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, it's easy to just say, change the life, uh, you know, focus less on the unimportant things. Everybody says that's so easy to do, but, but how do we get there? What do we, how should we get that perspective then? Yeah. One expert told me just like, think to yourself, like, is this thing really part of my job? Like, do I really have to do it? Like what would happen if I didn't have to, if I didn't do it? And some things like definitely are part of your job and you will not get a paycheck if you don't do them. And it varies from person to person, but you know, kind of like she likened her book is kind of likened to the Marie Kondo thing of like, you know, does it spark joy? You know, if not, let it go. And her thing is like, if it's not really important, let it go. And probably your manager will tell you if you 
like pull back on something that is important. But in, in many cases, we don't even know, we can't even figure out what's important. So everything becomes a fire drill. And then we're kind of just worse at a lot of parts of our jobs. What should employers be doing? Because sometimes they're jerks and they're not going to care. But there's a lot of employers that do wish to help their employees strike that work-life balance. What should they be doing on their part? You know, companies have done things like give people like bonus days off or bonus weeks off, or they've had listening sessions about burnout or meeting free days. It's all well-intentioned and a a good start. But what folks told me was it has to go beyond that. So if you're giving me a week off, you have to like loosen my deadlines and decrease expectations. If people are leaving, you know, the company because we're seeing so many resignations, you need to add more resources to my project in some way, whether that's by bringing on other team members or adding, you know, more automation or technology that could help. Like you have to really reduce the work in order to put some of these other benefits in. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Same TV artist Bob Ross is one of the history's most prolific painters, racking up almost 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. But you'd be hard-pressed to find one of his original works in the open market. And there's a few reasons why. First off, Bob Ross Inc., which owns the majority of his work, has them locked away in a warehouse but they make more money selling paints and painting supplies using his name. Secondly, many of his paintings are already sitting in homes across the country. For more on why it's so hard to find an original Bob Ross painting, we'll speak to Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle. You know, there's been an estimate that's thrown out by a lot of credible people in the Bob Ross space that he churned out about 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. Wow. Now, he painted about 1,100, 1,200 paintings for his TV show. And for each show, he'd do three versions. He'd mock one up before the show, he'd paint one during the show, and then he'd do one afterwards. But then outside of that, long before his TV career, he was selling paintings at flea markets in Alaska. And all through his career, even when he was famous, he'd do these events at malls and training sessions where he'd do these live paintings and either give them away or donate them. So there's a lot of those Bob Ross paintings out there, but in the open market, they're really hard to come by. Let's start off with Bob Ross and and his life. Personally, I had no clue that he had joined the Air Force and that he was actually a drill sergeant, which totally doesn't match his really calm demeanor on the show. I guess they used to call him Bust Him Up Bobby. All right. That's working so well. Hmm. Take a little white, a little bit of the blue, grab a little more of the titanium white. I want to make a light blue color here, mostly phthalo blue. And let's just tap a little color into the bristles. So two-inch brush will do marvelous things. Watch here. Watch here. Watch here. It's fun. Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised by that. So Bob was born in 1942 in Florida. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade, and his dad was a carpenter, so he worked with his dad for a while. And then he ended up in the Air Force in Alaska, and he worked his 20, for 20 years as a drill sergeant. And when he was out there in Alaska in these desolate kind of landscapes, he discovered painting and fell in love with it. So he retired, he moved to Florida in the 80s, and he studied under this famous TV painter named Bill Alexander, who was kind of his contemporary, this crazy guy on on public television. And he took one of the guy's classes and became something of an apprentice. And one of his students named Annette Kowalski was mesmerized by Bob Ross, and she convinced him to kind of strike out on his own. So they pulled together their money and they launched this company called Bob Ross Inc. 
and they kind of set out to make Bob Ross a TV star. And eventually a PBS executive got wind of Bob Ross and gave him a shot. And The Joy of Painting aired between 1983 and 1994. It was a huge hit. It was on like 300 stations, and it was broadcast to 80 million people a day. Yeah, and it's still a huge hit on YouTube. Just kind of in preparation mm-hmm. for us talking today, I just clicked on some random videos. One had about 5 million. Another one had 35 million. I think it's like <laughs> over 450 million views total or something like that. I mean, it's just amazing yeah, kind yeah. of how long all of these videos really live on. And and you mentioned Bob Ross Inc. So the kind of company that they started, really that became the moneymaker, not necessarily these paintings or anything like that, but all the stuff, the intellectual property of that because they sell paints and paintbrushes and all that. And that really was the business driver right there. Yeah, it's funny. Even today, you go online, you can find so much Bob Ross stuff, man. It's like paints, brushes, Bob Ross underwear, Bob Ross coffee mugs, energy drinks, watches, toasters. And for Bob Ross Inc., the paintings were kind of always an afterthought. The main value add for them was capitalizing on his image and spreading his, his kind of gospel of making painting accessible to everyone. It was a very profitable company. It was grossing around $15 million by 1991. But the paintings, they just went into storage and they sat around for a long time in cardboard boxes and they didn't really know exactly what to do with them. And even today, they have this small kind of office complex in Northern Virginia. And if you go in there, there's just a bunch of Bob Ross paintings sitting around. And for the most part, they're not very utilized. They're probably worth millions. And, uh, you know, if they ever want Mm -hmm. to sell them, they could. But that's not necessarily the plan right now. So they hold a lot of them. But what happened to all those other, right, the the 30,000 total, you know, what happened to all those? Mm -hmm. And and I love the way you write up in the story. And it's just so true. As he would give them away, they'd auction them off locally. A lot of these Bob Ross originals, right, are sitting in people's homes and people's storage. They may not know, but they're just kind of out there. And that's where they're at currently, but in the open market to, you know, as a, as a, to sell them on the mm-hmm. art platform, you know, they're not really in wide circulation. So about 1,165 Bob Ross originals are at Bob Ross Inc. And they're just kind of sitting there on occasion. They'll loan them out to various exhibits around the country. There's a couple at the Smithsonian right now. They're not on view, but they're in the archive. There's an exhibit in Muncie, Indiana. There's one in Florida. But like you said, the shocking thing is that, you know, outside of Bob Ross's TV work, he just was very generous during his lifetime. He had a lot of fans and most of the people who bought his painting were just like working class Americans, you know, living in the middle of America. And they picked these up for 40, 50, 60 dollars and kind of just thought they were a nice, pretty painting to hang on their wall. They're hanging in bathrooms and living rooms and hallways and Until recently, I don't think many people knew what they had on their hands, but when they do pop up on the open market, it's not uncommon to see them fetch more than $10,000. There's currently one at an auction house online for $94,000. So it can be quite a uh, tasty investment for the people who got in early. (laughs) You have a a great story about a man named Larry Walton who bought Mm -hmm. a Bob Ross painting for 60 bucks. I think this was in in Alaska. Tell us that story because he went through the process of actually turning it over to an art dealer, that art dealer ended up selling it for even more money. So tell us that story, because that's just kind of an interesting ride for a Bob Ross painting. And for somebody that might have one, something that you could probably do too. A great story that illustrates the the types of folks who own these paintings today is 
This guy, Larry Walton, he's 82 now, and he lives in Minnesota. And back in 1980, he was working as a flight instructor in Alaska. And uh, he saw this guy who he described as a peculiar artist and at an Anchorage fair selling his paintings. And he bought this scene with like mountains and northern blue northern lights for $60. And it literally just it sat in his garage for years and years and years. And his son, who had seen Bob Ross's YouTube videos, saw the signature in the corner and thought it looked familiar. So they eventually realized it was a Bob Ross original. They reached out to this auction and art gallery named Modern Artifact. They're a dealer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they're actually kind of the premier Bob Ross reseller. So they've put a lot of work into like SEO and newspaper advertisements to dig up these paintings. And they'll buy them for what I think is a pretty fair price. I think in in this case, they gave Larry Walton $10,000 for his painting. The gallery owner took it and flipped it for eighteen and a half thousand to another Bob Ross buyer. But over the years, Modern Artifact has come across dozens of Bob Ross paintings and uh, made a, a pretty good business out of reselling them online to people who aren't able to find them anywhere else. Right. I think you mentioned in the article that they sold at least 34 Bob Ross paintings over the mm-hmm. years. And obviously, these landscapes... They're very simple. They're easily identifiable, obviously. They're, you can replicate them pretty easily. That was Bob Ross's style. But, I mean, just kind of the persona that he's built up, the icon, I guess, the art icon that you you could call him, over the years, you know, a cultural icon as well, they hold so much more significance. And I would love to have one in my living room and say, hey, that's a Bob Ross right there. You know, it, it's so cool. And, yeah. But you spoke to some art appraisers. They said that maybe the true value of one of these is probably about $2,000 to $4,000. But considering all that stuff that we've been talking about, right, that's what bumps up that price to $10,000 to $18,000. Mm-hmm. So the one that they have, at you, as that you said, for $94,000 at auction. It's a supply and demand thing. Art appraisals are based on many factors, but Bob Ross paintings, I think of them kind of like diamonds. Like there's tons of them out there, but there's kind of this artificial scarcity created by people holding on to them for a long time and Bob Ross Inc. holding their trove as well. So this kind of shortage on the market causes the prices to just absolutely explode. And another appraiser told me they don't necessarily think of Bob Ross as a strictly fine art. They're kind of entertainment memorabilia. So you're also kind of paying for the fact that Bob Ross is on television. He was a public persona. And I actually talked to one collector who owns Picasso's and other famous artworks and She actually told me she considered her Bob Ross to be kind of the crown jewel of her collection. (laughs) She gets more comments from her dinner guests on the Bob Ross than she does on her other paintings. And for her, it was all just about the painting having a really good backstory. And I think there's just a, a general fascination with Bob Ross. And he's kind of this permanent cultural icon. That's yeah an immortal force in our culture. 100%. I'm going to start low-key looking for these Bob Ross originals <laughs> around, and I'm sure luck, a lot of man. people are going to hear this and then go to their garage or their storage and start looking at some of that stuff that they have hidden away to see if they might have one from years ago that they don't even know. So, uh, yeah, just a great story. Yeah. And as I mentioned, a great guy with a lot uh, a rich history to himself as well. Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.